0: being Southern as well probably didn't help but I basically was way too polite and I would take all the meetings and I would take the follow-up meetings and I would just let it drag on forever because I didn't understand that I could ask hey love your fund love what you represent do you have money right now
1: From actress to tech CEO, Cooper Harris has forged a path unlike any other we have ever heard on the podcast. After her personal experience with online shopping led her to realize that there had to be an easier way to purchase products in just a few clicks, she launched Clickly, a smart commerce engine that powers impulse payments online. Tune in to hear how Clickly is disrupting the e-commerce space, her best tips for fundraising, and so much more. Coming up, how Cooper's training as an actress prepared her to be a CEO. Cooper shares how her trailblazing grandmother has been an influential presence in her life. Her best tips on raising venture capital and why doing market research is essential. Cooper tells us what she wishes she had done differently when she had first started fundraising. And finally, she shares her experience and knowledge with biohacking and how it has improved her life. We are so excited to be here with you today to share your story and entrepreneurista journey. You have quite the incredible journey because you did not start out as an entrepreneurista. You started out as a TV actress. What led you to have this aha moment to decide to launch your own business?
0: Yeah. It's not the most obvious transition, is it? So basically I grew up with well, my brother was a computer engineer. So from the age of 12, we were like hacking together websites, you know, back when you had to upload stuff to the FTP server and it was dial up. Right. And so then my dad was a serial entrepreneur. So I just had that in my blood. And basically I was on set and I started sneaking off to hackathons and I got really into tech and i was like, yeah, this feels fun. And that was what got me to the kind of technological space. And then the actual inspiration for Clickly was I was on my phone as we all are all the time. And I saw this ad pop up on a article I was reading and it was the cutest pair of shoes, y'all. I just, I was like, okay, fine. I'll buy them right now. Let's do it. Sounds like like Courtney. Right? I mean, you know. We know what we want. And when I saw those shoes, I was like, yep, want those. So I clicked on it. And then that experience of clicking from that ad to waiting for a new page to load up to then trying to go find the shoe and put it in my cart and fill out my shipping, my billing, it was just so irritating. And I turned to my engineers and I was like, why don't we fix this problem? Like, why don't I have just an impulse buy button that can allow me to purchase these directly in the ad without all this rigmarole of like a navigation? So.
2: And what were you doing at that time that you had engineers?
0: right? So I was doing hackathons. So basically I was at that point, I think on Young and the Restless and I, on weekends and stuff, would just kind of sneak away, go to the hackathons. I would partner with these brilliant engineers and designers and whatnot. And we made, gosh, two, three, five products, like whole, you know, little baby businesses. Right. And we worked together because we ended up winning all the hackathons. And so that was the team that I proposed this to. And they were like, actually, that's not a bad idea.
1: So how is Clickly different from other customer acquisition engines for brands? Because I know there are others out there, but there is definitely something special about yours.
0: Well, thanks. I mean, I I like to think so. That's the intention anyway. And a lot of brands that, that we partner with our customers, a lot of them are using really Facebook and then other things. And what we wanted to do was help brands, these exciting D2C brands, how can we help them hedge against just being dependent on Facebook? and so we wanted to create a platform that was that would achieve roughly the same thing but that was perhaps a little less risky and or also just an additional platform. So the two things that are really different about Clickly really there's three. The sign up process is insanely easy and within that process we actually let brands choose their own commission. Meaning They aren't loading up that upfront spend, if you will. So there's no budget. There's no, you know, there's not like, I'm going to pay you to do this. And then on the back end, hope that it works out. Rather, we charge our customers only after we've driven a sale for them. And so that's a cool, very, I mean, completely performance-based model. And It's cool because our brands can also choose the commission they wanna pay for each sale. So some brands you see them are, you know, they're happy. They're not needing to get aggressive. You know, they'll give us three, four, 5%. But then some brands are like, nope, VC funded. I wanna grow aggressively and they can afford a much higher percentage because we recognize each brand is different. We allow them to do that. So that's really the first thing that's super different. The second, of course, is that our, let's call them ads or creatives are viable. So we call them checkout ready marketing messages. So whether it's sending out through an email or an app or an extension or an ad, what we send to the consumer is a very streamlined purchase, kind of like what I wanted from the ad with the shoes earlier. (laughs) And we let the consumer buy with like a couple quick clicks instead of this larger navigation process.
1: Would you say there's key lessons or things that you learned from when you were spending your time acting that you brought into building this business? Yeah.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, when you hear it at first blush that, you know, this TV actress became a CEO of a tech company that was funded by Google and some impressive names, you're just like, what the heck? Why, how did this happen? But really from my perspective, I feel like my very uh, classical and rigorous training in acting and performing arts was very helpful to becoming a CEO. So one thing as an example is like the hours. I went to a performing arts conservatory boarding school for high school, and then similarly for for college. So when I graduated, I had not had a day off in five years, maybe six, and you know I was used to working from eight a.m. until like midnight, right? And so that kind of level of discipline and kind of intensity was great. Also, keep in mind that when you are acting, you are also like auditioning a lot. You're being told know a lot in sometimes some very painful ways. So you get a really thick skin, so that's good. It's great prep for fundraising. And then finally, when you have to memorize 80 pages a day of lines, that kind of discipline and focus translates very well from when you have to do like last minute presentations as an executive.
2: That's really interesting, the The correlations between the, the two jobs. You wouldn't have thought though, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Well, it's so funny because at Socialfly, whenever we're hiring, we have a lot of people who used to have musical theater backgrounds. And we always say that it definitely helps with your presentation skills to be really comfortable speaking to people and with, with public speaking. So that's
1: your point. Yeah, I, totally. I always say my musical theater background definitely prepped me for for running a business, just being on stage and talking to clients and being in front of a team. I think mm-hmm. the skills you learn doing theater or any type of performance are so important that can really be used in every industry. Definitely, that's so true. Yeah, I love that insight. Yeah.
2: You have a grandmother that inspired you to become an entrepreneur. Can you share more about that story?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is kind of wild and actually not anything we found out for a little while. I was a kid when when I discovered this, but the rest of my family didn't know till then either. So in the mid to late nineties, we found out that my grandmother had been a spy for the US basically. So she was in the Signal Intelligence Corps and was one of the first female programmers. During World War II, she worked with this, basically this huge, I want to call it a computer. It really wasn't, but it was like this computing machine that helped decode specifically the codes from the Nazi U-boats. So they basically found her at NC State. She was one of, you know, 20 women in the entire college who, by the way, had to be trained and educated in their own little like schoolhouse away from everyone else. And when they wanted to go to eat at the cafeteria, they had to be escorted by men to wow. walk, walk across campus, right? Because that would have been so, you know, oh, the impropriety of walking around by herself. So she was 16, 17. She got recruited from NC State. She was studying what they called like radio engineering, but basically electrical engineering. And they recruited her into this top secret group to crack these codes. And there's actually a really cool kind of call. I think it's called the Code Breakers or something. There's a cool book out right now exactly about what she did. But she got conscripted to Arlington Hall and she lived with these other amazing women. And it was super top secret. And she basically didn't talk about it until the 90s. But they helped win the war.
1: Wow. That is incredible. So did she eventually come out and tell you this story?
0: Oh yeah. And I even got to do, you know, like presentations on it in like middle school and and high school, but basically, yeah, she would, she had a very specific thing she did and she would take these black cords, I guess, and plug them from, from one plug into other plugs in this massive machine, basically testing the different combinations to try to crack this code. And it it was early computer engineering, which of course women just, other than the war, if that hadn't happened, like they would not have had this opportunity
1: at all. Wow, that is quite an incredible story and definitely such an an inspiration for you to go on and launch your own venture. Can you take us back to the early days of starting Clickly? Did you know right away that you were going to need to raise funding or did you start building before funding?
0: Oh, no, I'm always build before before fundraising. Always, 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 because if you fundraise for something you haven't proved out, you're going to have to give away so much equity and so much of the idea So I would say always try to build at least what we would call an MVP, right? Build that minimally viable product so that you can have ideally a working prototype before you go fundraise. So we did that.
1: Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your process for fundraising first, building out your MVP and how many rounds have you raised? Any tips you can share with that whole process? Because many of our entrepreneurs are fundraising right now or thinking about doing so.
0: Yeah. I mean, so everyone comes at it from a different perspective and a different ability to either fund the project themselves or not. So I think we have to keep in mind that, that it is not a one size fits all recommendation that I'm going to make, but if you have the ability to do it, I recommend not raising money to start with, right? Put in small amounts of your own, maybe some friends and family money, but don't go fundraise. Do five things first. Number one, you need to do real market research. And I see this so many times, but like, So many entrepreneurs and founders, they have an idea, which they come up with in a vacuum, and then they don't vet it. So they start building basically a platform, an idea, a company that actually the market doesn't want or isn't ready for and that's just a recipe for disaster and heartache, right? So it's really important that that first step, that first item that you do needs to be like, try to prove that your idea is terrible. Try to talk yourself out of it. Do the market research, get the numbers, hold beta tests, talk to users or potential customers, right? You have to do that. And then if you're convinced that it's a great idea, then I would say, that's fine. Try to build a prototype. like. Maybe less relevant for like an agency model where you are building services, but if you're building a tech product, you absolutely need to have like even a rough prototype to show like this is technically possible, right? (laughs) Because otherwise you'll just get so much pushback. It'll be so painful when you raise money and you can usually convince like engineering friends or others to build stuff for free and, or I should say like a couple bucks. And if you can't, it might be an indication that this isn't an interesting product, really. So once you build that MVP, then this is a step that I think people really skip over. Get LOIs. So letters of intent are absurdly powerful, way more than you would think when you're fundraising. So a lot of people kind of skip that step and they're like, oh, people will buy it. Or the market research says we think people will buy it. It's so much more powerful just to walk into an investor presentation and be like, boom, here's my book of 50 LOIs from customers who are going to pay for this. And by the way, kind of fun side note, a letter of intent, an official one on that company or client's letterhead is non-binding. So if you have a good relationship, they literally lose nothing, just indicating interest that they'll use it when you launch your product. So you may as well. And then the fourth thing is find an advisory board that's impressive and it can actually give you the expertise you need. And then the fifth thing is fundraising. But before you've done your market research, actually have a prototype that works, you know, even if it's very minimal, before you have letters of intent that say your customers are going to pay and a badass advisory board, like I would not ever go raise money because it's going to be a heartache and people are going to waste your time. And there's a big trend towards supporting female founders. So everyone will take your meeting and you will get no money. So that's what I would say.
2: That's really great advice. How long did it take you to get to your minimal minimum viable product?
0: So I had this awesome guy named Mike, who was kind of my first, he was barely a hire because basically he volunteered in his spare time to build an MVP of, of the tech I wanted to build. And he did it. And he, we did it over the course of like two months on weekends in his spare time because he had a full-time job. And he did it basically for free. But what he was so clever about, and I owe him so much for this. He said, Cooper, I can't do it for free though, because if I do, you won't own the IP, the intellectual property or the tech. He was like, you need to write me a contract and contract me to build this product for you for $1. And the second actual money changes hands, you then, and this contract design, you then own the IP. And i just remained forever in his debt. He didn't have to tell me that, but he really wanted to make sure that I owned the product and the idea and could move forward with it. How cool is that?
2: Where do you find friends like this?
0: Yes. <laughs> I met him at a hackathon, I kid you not. We weren't even like super close to start with. He was just like such a lovely guy and offered to do it.
1: It's so important in business that you find great relationships like this with people that you know that you can trust because it can be yeah. tough in business. And Courtney and I have definitely learned over the years, you know, there's your team of cheerleaders who are with you from the beginning, yeah. who you have this great relationship with and can trust them. And it's just so, so important. What, what what was his name or what is his name? Mike. Mike, Mike, Mike. So I'm assuming you guys are still in touch today. <laughs>
0: Not, not hugely, you know, I think he sees probably on social and stuff, how we're growing, but yeah, I mean, he had a full-time job and he went to Bloomberg and led this really cool tech initiative there. And, you know, it was just, it was literally like, you know what I found the best engineers don't just want to work nine to five. They're actually stimulated by and excited by building cool stuff. And if you have a cool idea that they're intrigued by, chances are they're, they're willing to lend at least some amount of effort or help to Yeah, to see if they can do it. It's like a cool problem to solve, you know? So I talked to a lot of folks, and then I got the LOIs that I described. So by the way, no one was actually using it yet. (laughs) I just got letters of intent from some, I think, very impressive organizations. And then we got a small amount of funding, and then I did go out and actually onboarded users. But our first, one of our first users was actually Eminem's team, the rapper. So he was selling his merch and actually getting donations using the Clickly platform. And we did early tests with like Habitat for Humanity and ASPCA and Goodwill, I think. Yeah. So it was like very kind of merch focused or giving back focused early because those are the organizations I knew at the time. And then gradually we got put on a lot of stages and connected with like obviously brands who wanted to use the platform too, because that is, you know. I did make it in order for me to buy a pair of shoes. So eventually we got those folks. Yeah, and then it was off to the races.
1: Up next, Cooper shares how she first built her team and her best tips for working with a family member. Cooper, I wanna hear a bit about building your team at Clickly. Who was your first hire when you first launched the business?
0: So I guess technically it was Mike, right? Because I paid him a dollar to, uh, to build my MVP. But uh, <laughs> I'm Mike. Mike, <laughs> Yeah, right. right. Probably I would say my first long-term hire was actually an incredible full-stack engineer, one of the smartest guys I know, my brother. So as you heard earlier, he and I had been building websites, mostly um, you know, from the time we were like 12. And he's just incredibly brilliant. He's like a double major from Swarthmore, you know, just and and a full-stack developer. So I convinced him to move out to California with me after I'd raised like a little money. I've hired like a couple early people, you know, but he was like the first investment that I made into my team. And I think it's turned out well he's still with us. So
1: so you are the second entrepreneur who has shared a similar story. We just interviewed Ali oh, cool. Ali Webb from Dry Bar, who also was in business with her brother as well. So what I want to know is what is the key to a successful business relationship when you are working with a very close Family member.
0: Yeah, don't be their manager. So have someone else be the person that they report into so that you can continue having a non like boss employee relationship. Such a good tip.
2: How big is your team?
0: We're still under 50. So we are still fairly lean, which sounds insane when you, you know, if you know how fast we've grown, you know how many clients we have. But the reality is, you know, when you are building a tech platform, you actually shouldn't need many people to power it. So if you have a tech product, in my opinion, and you have to hire like uh, thousands of people for your sales team, it's like, really? Because you should have built a product that sells itself. Yeah. So we're quite lean.
2: So what is the, of the 50 people you have, how many people are in sales and, and how, what's the team structure?
0: Yeah. So I would say, you know, two thirds at least half I would say are in product tech and design. So we call that product, but it it houses both the building of the tech, the QA of the tech, the design, UX, UI, the product development management, all that is under product for us. So that I would say is about half, if not slightly more. And then a portion of the team, maybe 25%, about 20% is in sales slash accounts. So they're the ones Selling our brands and then keeping track of our brand customers, making sure they're happy, doing that like account management stuff, even though we aren't a service, but yet, you know, they'll have issues or they'll have questions or you have to have somebody to take care of them. And then again, about 20%, I would say is on what we call the consumer side. So part of our business is taking our brands, putting them on our platform in a commission-based model, right? And then making sure that we show the right thing to the right person at the right time so that our brands get new customers because we're all about customer acquisition. Well, those consumers that we target take work and nurturing and engagement, right? So we have about 20% of our team that works on the, what we call the consumer team. And then we also have a small percentage that is the ops team. And that's just folks who do you know, HR recruiting, legal finance, all that stuff.
1: How has your role evolved over the past few years since you've grown? Well,
0: I have a couple hours of sleep each night, which is nice now. You know, in the beginning, you're doing everything you're doing, sales and account management and product management. You know, in the beginning, I would be up at 1:30 to have calls with India because my first product was actually built overseas in India, and by strangely a team of female engineers. How unusual, very unusual. But in any case, we swapped them over to an in-house team pretty quickly. But, you know, I was doing that. And now I have final sign-off on product, of course, and UX, UI, but I'm not, you know, creating, I'm not project managing, you know, in the beginning, I would do the designs and definitely don't want me doing designs, right? So I don't do those things anymore. However, you know, I still touch every part of the business in some way. I guess I'm the ultimate gatekeeper, so to speak, right? But the goal of the CEO, it's to replace yourself, right? So all of the founders and entrepreneurs listening, I think it's wise to think of it as You have all these roles to fill in your team. And ideally, each one of them should be really expert, really smart, and really specialized. And that's not you. shouldn't be you, right? So you need to kind of replace yourself in every role until you are so redundant that all you do is like you're the gatekeeper of the ultimate product before it goes to market and gets live.
2: How did you learn what you just shared? You know, I feel like as a, for me, it took me a while to learn or feel comfortable Hiring, letting go, letting other people run things. Oh,
0: totally. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And and still like, but that's, you know, it's like you kind of have to loosen the reins a little bit and you have, you have to be able to delegate. And then you have to have people who are good enough to delegate to. And that was a challenge, like in the beginning, to be honest, our people weren't good enough to delegate to. Because we were having to hire really junior people because we couldn't afford experts. And, you know, comma splice, y'all. Why is that here in the copy? But it was constantly or like misspellings or all of that stuff. And it's just like you have to look at everything at a certain point, right? Because otherwise the quality isn't going to be there. However, I think it's about knowing when to level up and as much as you can afford to replace yourself with the experts. It became clear to me very quickly because... I was bottlenecking everything, like everything, right? And we were moving more slowly because I was trying to do everything, Courtney. And obviously that's a great way to go slow and not be efficient.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I wanna go back to our conversation about fundraising because you shared five key tips about being ready to fundraise, but now you have all of those things in place. What was your process like when you initially went to fundraise and how many rounds have you raised already?
0: Oh well, gosh, my initial process was awful, okay? It was terrible. I, I would never recommend doing what I did, but I did learn not to do that. So basically-
1: Tell us what you did and what you did wrong and that, <laughs> and now what you've done going forward.
0: <laughs> well, because I would have, I mean, I learned, p- part of why I learned those quote unquote five steps is because I did try to raise money here and there, not, not in any kind of, I don't know, discipline process, but I did try here and there to raise money prior to having those five pieces and it was miserable. And then I also- I think this is normal for a young entrepreneur, maybe especially a woman, but at least for me being Southern as well, probably didn't help, but I basically was way too polite and I would take all the meetings and I would take the follow-up meetings and I would just let it drag on forever because I didn't understand that I could ask, Hey, love your fund. Love what you represent. Do you have money right now? Do you have a fund that is currently deploying capital? I met with so many folks who, and they should have disclosed this, but didn't have a live fund. Like literally we're just taking the meetings because, I don't know. And here's the deal. Investors, VCs, angels, whoever they are, investors will never tell you no, because they always want to keep it like kind of open, kind of, you know, because they have no downside. They're like, oh yeah, that looks maybe promising. Oh, I'll, I'll kick it down the road. Sure. So the thing you have to do as an entrepreneur is come with the right materials and then be confident in the idea that like, it's going to be yes or no. Are you interested in having a next meeting after you establish that they actually have money? Great. What are the check sizes you write? Great. What's the ARR, the annual recurring revenue or just run rate of companies you invest in? Oh, you need to see a million in revenue before you invest. Great. So it sounds like we're too early. Is that right? Like punch in pleasantly but punch in on the realities and and get your metrics to understand if it's actually a reasonable fit. Yeah. I mean, otherwise you will spend so much time like having coffee with people, but you know, that's not what we're up to.
2: (laughs) So it sounds like you learned this from, you know, spending quite a bit of time spinning your wheels with, with some investors. Oh yeah. So like Stephanie was saying, when was your last round that you raised and are you looking to continue to raise? Maybe. I mean,
0: money's, money's around right now. It's very fluffy in the market currently. So we are actually exploring quite a large growth round, but we're also like profitable. So, so that's, and that's very unusual for a VC funded company, right? We're really not supposed to make money all But we are. And so it does let us own our own destiny, so to speak, and be able to kind of decide when and where we want to raise versus needing to. So that's that's great. And that's what that's the situation now. We did raise around back in gosh, we closed it two weeks before COVID. So we closed it Feb 2020. And that was great. You know, we had VCs, we have like the CTO of Stripe, the head of innovation from Google some of the Warby Parker team, the Bombas founding team. So some really good and helpful experts and strategics. And then we also have some, you know, very traditional Silicon Valley VCs, uh, you know, firms. But yeah, we we are so grateful to them. We closed that round like over a year ago, as you heard, and finally haven't touched it, but but it's there. So, so we don't need to raise. We do have a new product launching that's Pretty exciting. Early numbers are um, pretty staggering, which is why I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want to jinx anything. But <laughs> if we, if it does continue to blow up, we will raise probably a very large growth capital round.
1: Well, we'll definitely record it and share an update when you when you have more exciting news for sure. Would you say there's something that you know now that you really just wish you knew when you were first starting out as an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah. So one of them, of course, was not to try to raise money and not to like go out of order. Like I would do the five things I talked about, right? So that I really wish I had known. Like you have to do major market research. You have to build a real prototype that works. You have to get letters of intent from customers, advisory board, and then fundraise. So honestly, I wish I had known that and just had like a checklist to go one, two, three. But the other thing is I went it alone. And there's like an African proverb that's like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I would say if you want to go fast or far, go together. Like, I wish that I had not insisted on doing everything myself by myself, frankly. It would have sped up the process and perhaps yielded less burnout in those early days because I am telling you, like, I did not sleep. I was beyond stressed. It was so fun. I actually had fun the entire time, but it was incredibly stressful.
1: Who would you have done it with?
0: Well, there you got me because I don't know. I, I have one, my COO right now, I would have started a business with him. He's incredible. But other than that, maybe my brother, right? But other than those folks, actually, it's, it's, it is very hard to find folks with whom you trust. You know, you work well enough to actually spend 20 hours a day together and also who you like trust implicitly and who have complimentary skills to you who aren't doubling up what you already know, you know, who won't let egos get involved. All of that stuff is just insanely hard. So there's that too.
1: Is your team working exclusively remotely now? Yeah. And were you always remote before or was this new since last year?
0: No, we did remote Wednesdays. So that was like a team perk. When you join Clickly, you can work from home every Wednesday. So we actually already had like a really solid remote process, so to speak. But yeah, we went full time with that remote process with COVID. And um, thank God we had it already in place. But yeah, now we're all happily remote and probably will remain so, at least to a great extent.
1: Oh, did you actually get our present in the mail since? I did. Oh, good. I okay, know. good, good, good. I, know. I just wanted to be sure that they came because I yes. know you've been traveling. So I'm glad you got them. Yep, that, that's why we started our cards. So you gotta <laughs> keep all our remote teams engaged and happy and together. <laughs> yeah, they were so cute. Exactly.
2: Where do you see Clickly five to 10 years into the future?
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, So what we're doing is really unique in a way. We're creating a new category only in that, you know, traditionally, if you look at like marketing companies, media slash publishers, and then e-commerce platforms, historically, they've operated very distinctly, differently, separately, you know, in their own little silos. But if you look at the last three, four years, especially last year, you see that So many companies in each of those spaces is trying to augment their current offering with the others, meaning you have all of these marketing and advertising companies trying to add e-commerce, trying to add elements of like media, if you will. And then similarly, every publisher in existence is trying to get into e-commerce and is kind of offering their own like advertising solution. And then you also see a lot of e-commerce companies, again, adding marketing, adding you see, as a really interesting example, Walmart popping up their own in-store ad network that also is on their site. Walgreens is doing something similar, you know, and then you see platforms like, well, Adobe, like advertising-ish platform, uh, buying Magento. Anyway, you see so much overlap. And the reason is large corporations are starting to understand the value of seeing the consumer from conception, like from when you hit them all the way through the funnel till they get to the site, then what they interact with on the site, then what they buy in the site, then looking at the data of like, oh, they bought this, here's where they live, here's where they're shipping it to. And then when that consumer comes back and engages in the loyalty, knowing all of that, not just the portion that a media company would know or the e-commerce company would know or the loyalty platform would know, knowing all of it is incrementally and exponentially more valuable than even just any piece. And so that's what we're building. And because of that, I do see a future where, we are a multi-billion-dollar business because we have essentially built already and profitably so and functionally so. We have built already what a lot of these large kind of Fortune 500s are are trying right now to to achieve.
1: That's really incredible, and I feel like in such a, a short time too. What would you say you're most proud of? Probably the business.
0: You know, the fact that like as a as a woman who is classically trained as an actor and had a fairly successful career as an actor that I followed this kind of spark of passion into tech and have actually built something that makes money and and also help small challenger brands and not so small brands as well, you know, like compete against old legacy players and get them, you know, fortune 500 level tech. All of that is pretty exciting
1: to me.
2: I am going to figure out how we can use Clickly for our clients right after this session.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Do you partner with other agencies? How do you typically acquire your clients?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So
0: quickly is an invite-only platform, which was perhaps a weird choice when we were starting out, given that we were tiny. So why would we turn folks away? But given that it's fairly risk-free, the brands that we allow on the platform literally only pay when we get it right. So we wanted to make sure that we could do well by them and make sure that they were like a good fit for us too. But absolutely, we do partner with agencies and other platforms. So a lot of, if not all of our brands come through Like vetted partners. So we work with some of the top digital agencies here in New York. We work with some very cool partners, you know, like partnerships with Shopify, Magento, Klarna's of the world, those types of, you know, e-commerce facing businesses. Yeah, great partners.
1: Up next, what Cooper is grateful for every day and a surprise rapid fire Q&A. All right, Cooper, now we're going to get into something really fun. And this is something we didn't share with you ahead of time. We like to do these rapid fire questions. So. Oh my,
0: okay. Should I be scared?
1: <laughs> you, you have a theater background in improv, so I know, I know you're good at right. stuff. <laughs> All right. So the first thing that comes to your mind, one word answers. Here we go.
0: Okay. Describe yourself in three words. Dynamic, energetic, perfectionist.
2: If you could learn one new skill, what would it be?
1: AI how to program and set up yeah, learning models and stuff. Very cool. All right. This is the question. My favorite question. This is how I really get to know someone. Uh-oh. What is your most used emoji when you send a text? Ha,
0: text is different from Slack. In Slack, it is now the cool parrot. And the cool parrot is a meme and it does this. And it like, it turns from pink to blue or whatever. But in text, it's probably raised hands. Like it's a combo of like, thanks plus like, I salute your awesomeness. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what's the app on your phone that you can't live without
0: chronometer
2: what is that
0: it measures well i input all of my food intake and it tells me how many carbs how my lipid intake is it tells me i'm all about biohacking oh I yeah
2: to- i have this ring do you have the ring
0: i don't Our but ring. but yeah i track my sleep too yeah I'm, I'm super into it like we're tracking macros we're tracking micros we're tracking all the things
1: do you and know then- about levels have you heard about Levels Health? We'll have to connect you with the founder of that company as well. She was on the podcast, but I think you'd really be into Levels. Yes. Yeah,
0: sounds amazing.
1: All right. Aside from your platform, what is your favorite tech business solution that has helped you in your business?
0: Well, I have to say Airbnb, and here's why. I use it as a consumer, but I also used it as a host to fund quickly in the early days. I kid you not. I had no income because I, I didn't want to take... like When I raised money, I was like, well, I'm not going to take a salary because I don't want to feel like I'm taking from my baby, you know, like, so I will fund my own salary by basically renting out my front room. And it worked really well because I live in LA and did at the time as well. And it's a very hot spot for people to go. So I rented out my, my front like master bedroom. Then I ended up renting out my brother's bedroom and then mine. And then we got the apartment next door and rented that out. And then we got another apartment. I kid you not, we, we did very well with our little Airbnb like foray there. And the funniest part was I'd be like on phone calls with massive clients, like think L'Oreal, right? And I'd, you know, get off the phone with this client and then run. I'd be like literally cleaning a bathroom you know, scrubbing the toilet and then like jump back on for a call with like Spin Media or some other massive company. It was a very funny period. And obviously that was like very early on, but like, yeah, I would say Airbnb like funded my company for a while.
2: You gotta do what you gotta do. I love that story.
0: Yeah. Uh, Do you
2: have a hidden talent?
0: I don't know if it's hidden. I play violin. So I've played classical violin for 20 years and yeah, I don't really talk about it, but I love it very much. And then I'm weirdly good at remote association tests, <laughs> so, so remote associations are where you list three words and then you name the fourth that has to do with each of them. It basically is a measure for your kind of like, well, your remote association, your ability to like link unlike items together with some common thread. And it does well. It helps you think outside the box basically. So how did, I you, find really out? Well <laughs> how did you find out you were good at remote? associations? I want to play tests? this game. I want to Google these tests now. Yeah, you should. You should do the test. I took a really cool executive development course. It was a one-on-one course with a very cool guy and his course involved a lot of remote associations. And he was like, I've never met anyone who does these so well. What is your deal? And I was like, Oh, uh, I have no idea. I went to Waldorf school. Maybe that's it. But um, yeah, no idea.
1: That's so funny. I'm, I want to look this up after, after we're done recording. All right, last last rapid fire question. If you could have any superpower, what would it be?
0: Man, it used to be flying always, right? Just I wanted to fly. That was it. And now I don't know. I feel like I've been given so much. I almost don't know how i ask for anything more. That sounds cheesy, but it's honestly true. I really can't think of anything. Coding. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Getting into that AI stuff. Sure. Why not?
1: All right. Well, back to our regularly scheduled questions (laughs) here. (laughs) So I want to know I mean, you shared you're getting married soon, and I'm sure you're super busy with planning and also running your business. But what does a typical day look like for you while you're working and then while you're not working?
0: Yeah. I was going to say there is no outside of work day for me, it is all work all the time. But when I don't, work and I do try really hard to block Sundays off mainly for wedding planning now but basically my fiance and I will decide either to have a beautiful like lovely indulgent brunch or fast so we're very all or nothing we do a lot of fasting we've been doing IF intermittent fasting for like three years now we're on the same feeding window. And then we also do like to fast for like 24, 36 hours. So we do that together as well. So we'll do that or at brunch. We then will like buckle down and just do wedding stuff most of the time. And we work out like crazy people every single day.
2: Have you ever been to a care spa?
0: No, I'd love to though. Have you, have
2: you heard of it? It's My, in Palm Springs and yes. it's about detoxing yes. and yes. Kind of fasting.
0: Mm, and I would love to. Yes. It's way less glamorous and exciting to fast in your house where there's a lot of yummy food versus like being distracted by, you know, massages and beautiful (laughs) smells and sights.
1: Can you drink water while you're fasting?
0: Oh yeah. Unless you're doing a dry fast. So it's a contentious issue, but I maintain that you can have black coffee, water and herbal tea. Some people would argue, but none of those things have calories. So for me, it's, it works.
2: And what are the benefits and not that this is your expertise, but I'm just curious when you're fasting, cause I've tried fasting and it's, it's tough for me. What, like, what, what do you love about it?
0: Oh, I love so much about it. <laughs> and, and, disclaimer, I'm not a doctor. So these are all just personal opinions, <laughs> but I will tell you that when I started doing IF, which is how we Californians refer to intermittent fasting, I know it's obnoxious, but when we started doing IF, I basically chose eight hours in which to eat and I wouldn't anything outside of it. And if you think about it, that's pretty much what a lot of people do anyway. And so let's say you start eating at noon and you finish at eight, or you start eating at 11, you finish at seven. I'm actually, I have shrunk that window to about five hours. So I usually start eating at one and finish at six. But the reason is that when you are digesting food, it takes up one third to 50% of your body's energy to just digest food. And so it just takes a lot of effort. And when you leave room for your body to not digest food it can do other things like remove inflammation deal with the torn tissue do a lot of repairing functionalities a lot of cleansing functionalities and you just have more energy as well so i have to sleep less i have more energy and i'm more focused plus i don't have to work out as much as i do unless except for that i want to but like you also don't necessarily have to really go to the gym either
1: (laughs) that is so interesting when did you learn all
0: of this well I know Courtney is like, this isn't your expertise, but kind of secretly is. So I'm like (laughs) very, very into and have done a ton of research on like longevity and biohacking and nutrition since I was probably like, I don't know, at least for the last 10 years and kind of stayed abreast of like the latest stuff. And the other benefit to not, to not eating is to fasting is longevity. So it's actually, this is backed up by a ton of science. It is the only thing currently that's absolutely proven to extend your lifespan and your health span.
1: Wow. I, we can do a whole nother podcast episode. I, I have learned
2: so much from you in, in oh this God. session. I have to say you're, you're right, right. a wealth of knowledge.
1: Well, wait, I have another question about this. <laughs> so I'm the type of person, I have to eat first thing in the morning because I feel like I'm starving when I wake up because I haven't eaten since the night. So once you start doing this intermittent fasting, it goes you away. then not have those. You don't have cravings. cravings.
0: Because oftentimes when you eat, you want to eat more. And that's just a bodily function because it's kind of what we're geared to do. But it's also a function of your microbiome, which has a ton of little critters down there who are like, some of them really like sugar. Some of them really like bread and carbs. Some of them really like X and Y and Z. And if you feed them, they will put—they actually put out signals that you think is a craving from you. And it feels like that, but it's actually not. It's them. And so if you stop feeding them, by the way, they die. And then they can't tell you that you think you want to eat sugar because you don't, because they're not there.
1: <laughs> so, so interesting. Yeah. Your cravings go away. Wow. I've learned so much. Thank you. Thank you. Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to know, do you have a favorite mantra or quote that you just live your life by? Oh, hmm.
0: well, that's so interesting. Yeah, I do. I have. Well, so what's interesting is I actually have a mantra that I say when I wake up and then another one when I go to bed, but I just say them just to kind of have them ingrained. But the one I would say that more informs my life is actually a quote from Goethe. So Ludwig von Goethe, one of my favorite like philosophers and poets. He wrote this phrase which says whatever you can do or think you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power and magic in it. And I just feel like it's so true. And then and then it kind of goes on to talk about how the world will then conspire to work in your favor once you, you know, step boldly. What's that other quote I love? Step boldly in the direction of your dreams. Right? It's that idea of like manifesting not a delusional way, but like really manifesting and creating what it is that you want. And then my morning mantra is just a very quick gratitude practice. So it just focuses me on like, that I will rejoice in the day that, that I've been given. I love that.
2: I love that. So what are you grateful for each day?
0: Everything. <laughs> you know, I think about it and I'm like, here's the, here's the real test. Like, and it's kind of morbid, but go with me. If you were told today that you had a month left to live, what would you change? So I ask myself that sometimes, and honest to God, I wouldn't change anything. And that is really cool to be able to say, because I think in the past I would have, but like I have an incredible partner, fiance. I have an incredible family that I feel very close to. I mean, heck, I'm living in their first floor right now, right? And lead up to my wedding. So I'm very close to them. But also we have an amazing relationship. You know, I work with my brother. I love my team. I built a great company that I feel like is doing good things. So uh, for all those things, I'm really grateful.
1: That's so, so wonderful to be living, living the life of your dreams and then sharing all of these talents and learnings with the world. So, so thank you for that.
0: Oh gosh, my pleasure. I hope it was helpful or at least interesting.
1: No, absolutely. Definitely.
2: You blew my mind several times during this
1: conversation. <laughs> oh my
2: God. That's
0: funny.
1: Cooper, final question for you today. What does being an entrepreneur mean to you?
0: Oh, what a cool question. Okay. So, so I actually thought about this a lot and I was like, well, clearly it means like being a female entrepreneur and you're, you're, you know, blazing a trail and all that. But I also think it means like being part of this movement, the entrepreneurista movement, which, which by definition means you're lifting each other up. We are lifting each other up. There's this sisterhood out there that's been like woefully neglected. And, and, you know, even like weaponized against each other in weird ways and and like taught to fear who we are and what we are by like silly images of skinny, skinny people looking XYZ ways and like it is all such BS, right? So the idea of creating this entrepreneurista tribe where we're really living into like our power and in a soft and, and feminine way too, right? Not just that type A aggression. I just think that building that community is what's so important right now in the world. We as entrepreneurs, you know, maybe that even means like, yeah, becoming a business leader, but maybe becoming leader even beyond that, right? There's there's a presidential role to be had at some point. All of that, yeah. So that's what it would mean to me.
1: Absolutely. We we cannot agree more. And we're so grateful for you, for all of you've done for this community. And thank you so much for sharing your story and journey. And we are going to continue to stay connected and in touch so we can share all of your new exciting announcements and developments with the company. So thank you again for, for being here.
0: Amazing! Oh my gosh, my pleasure. So much fun. Courtney, Stephanie, this has been a blast.
1: Where can everyone find you, follow you? And if someone is interested in Becoming a customer? What's the best way to reach out?
0: Yeah, I'm really active on Instagram. So it's at Cooper Harris, just one word, Cooper Harris. I'm also semi-active on Twitter still at Cooper Harris. And then if you want to check out Clickly, you can go to clickly.com, K-L-I-C-K-L-Y.com. And then you'll go to like a little tab that says brands and that's where brands should go.
1: Awesome, we'll definitely be sure to share in all of the show notes and on social. Cooper, thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie. I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entrepreneista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas.com. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entrepreneista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.